The Manage Smarter Podcast is brought to you by Sales Fuel Local, instant intelligence for selling to small and mid-sized businesses with CRM integration. Learn more at salesfuel.com. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. It's the Manage Smarter Podcast, everyone. We have got a very prestigious and very interesting guest today. Welcome. I'm Audrey Strong. I'm Vice President of Communications at SalesFuel. And we're going to geek out. So this is a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I'm Celie Smith, the President and CEO of SalesFuel. And direct from the Princeton Campus Library, we have Edward Tenner. Edward, welcome to the show. I'm going to tell people a little bit about you. Hello. How are you? Hello. Thank you very much. That's great. All those people studying behind you. It's very inspiring. <laughs> well, actually, I, I'm, in a, uh, I'm in a cafe, and they're really eating and talking. Rather than oh. oh, good. No Even chance better. of being sushed. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Edward, you began your career as a PhD in history. Edward became a science editor and then the executive editor at Princeton University Press, where he published a list from Birdfield Guides to Richard Feynman's QED. Since 1991, been an independent writer and speaker. His books include Why Things Bite Back, Technology, and the Revenge of Unintended Consequences, Our Own Devices, How Technology Remakes Humanity, and most recently, and I've enjoyed reading this, The Efficiency Paradox what big data can't do. And I, I think that uh, it's insidious, isn't it, efficiencies? They really can uh, produce all kinds of interesting results. Edward, you want to talk yeah. a little bit about the umbrella topic of that? Yes, yeah, so well, the, the point of the book isn't, isn't against efficiency, but it's really about the idea that pursuing too much efficiency in the short term can make us less efficient in the long term. And by that, I mean that we need the right dose of, of inefficiency in order to help create future efficiency. So what examples of inefficiency uh, would be at play here? One of the favorite examples is uh, how long it took for uh, the, uh, the, the Xerox photocopier to become a working product from the time the principle was patented in 1938 the appearance of the Xerox 914 in, uh, in, in uh, 19, uh, 1959. And it, the, the inventing this was really a very inefficient process in which there were, there were many uh, starts and stops. For example, at one point, if a document had too many zeros and letter O's, the whole machine would burst into flames. So oh, my gosh. You, you needed, you needed a... Um, you needed to reformulate the toner. So something that appeared as this miraculous product really uh, re required a lot of patience and if people were really concerned with the most efficient use of their money in the short term, uh, they wouldn't have backed it. However, once the Xerox 914 was launched, uh, Xerox became one of the most profitable companies in return on investment in uh, perhaps in history. And then when Xerox uh, brought in professional managers who were looking at profit and loss, and they looked at these ideas in, the, uh, in their uh, research organization, the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, Xerox Park, and they said, well, it's going to be a long time, if ever, before we have these ideas like the graphic interface and the mouse. So in effect, they let Apple have it. 
and they stuck to photocopiers. I did not know that. Yeah, that's right. And so that they, they maintain a focus on what they believe that their, uh, their core competencies were and look what they gave up. Exactly. You in the book talk about uh, the issues that are caused by efficiencies. Um, some of the things you talk about are asymmetric knowledge, the importance or, uh, of, you know, passive knowledge, things that you don't, what did you say, that you don't know, that you know? Yeah, passive, yeah, uh, passive knowledge. So, <laughs> so asymmetry, for example, is, is the fact that big companies, and especially platform companies like Amazon uh, and Facebook and Google, they know so much more about the behavior of people interacting with, uh, with their site than people know about how they work. Uh, this this did not start with uh, the internet, for example, in the heyday of the Bell system. Bell knew much, much more about people's telephone behavior than was ever published in uh, academic uh, uh, papers. I knew somebody who worked there, for example, and he, he said they, they found in one survey that the same people who were paying extra for unlisted numbers would be interested in enhanced listings with their coat of arms. So there, there are all kinds of weird things about human behavior that uh, people in industry know about. And uh, one of the interesting trends in the last uh, few decades has been that more and more social science knowledge is proprietary knowledge. It, it, it isn't the, uh, the studies that are, that are published in the journals, although some people in these organizations do publish openly. But in addition to what they publish openly, there is all this uh, secret sauce that they have. Right. Campbell's Law was one of the things that you talked about. As you know, we're called Manage Smarter, so we have an audience of, you know, decision makers and all that. And can you define it? And I love that example you gave about how they would change accounting methods, you know, unintended consequences. Again, if we create an efficiency and then people find a workaround. And then also, could you explain maybe how managers can look for these types of situations and do an audit perhaps internally and find out that this is going on? Campbell's Law is a really important idea. I think one of the most uh, important unsung uh, ideas in social science, and once you describe it, it's really obvious that, that when you start measuring something in, in human behavior, you're starting to uh, affect the behavior of the people who are being measured, and you're not necessarily giving them an incentive to do exactly what you want. You're giving them an incentive to get the kinds of results that, that look like what, they're, what you want. For example, there it's are many fantastic. corporate incentive programs that, uh, that pay executives for results. And this was a, a product of criticism of corporate executives in the 70s and 80s, that they were complacent, that they were bureaucratic, that they didn't put the shareholder interest first. But the problem is that somebody who is uh, not putting the shareholder interest first will find ways to manipulate accounting so that uh, the results are, are booked very, very impressively. But then down the line, there will be some deferred costs. And once that person has retired or has moved on to another company, uh, then the shareholders get stuck with, uh, with all kinds of costs that should have been taken care of earlier. So how do you spot that sort of thing in a management or leadership role? Uh, well, I, I, don't have any, um, I don't have any formula for that, but I think that, that there is a, um, you know, I, 
I, I think that that um, it, the best idea might be not to rely too much on those incentives, but to look for people who are really intrinsically motivated. That is, people who are are really performing at their best, uh, not because of the extra money that they're going to get, but because they really believe in the organization's mission, uh, what they're what they're producing, the, the the services that they're offering. And somebody like that who is doing their best uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily need um, this this uh, this additional incentive. There there are a number of uh, critics of, of incentive systems generally who uh, who have pointed out that that uh, even when they're working as planned, they don't necessarily deliver the results that that people are looking for. You speak quite a bit about uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and in my circles, you know, when I hear that being talked about, there's this concern, of, oh, this is going to eliminate jobs, or we, you know, it's going to change the role of management and, and, and company leadership forever and everything like that. And, uh, you know, is AI really all of that? Is that something that we should be fearful of, or is that something that uh, perhaps presents some opportunities for us? Well, there's no doubt that, that, Artificial intelligence is going to change job classifications. It'll, it'll change. It'll change uh, job roles, and, and already already has been. Uh, but there have been predictions in the past that automation is going to uh, to uh, create mass unemployment. For example, during the Depression, uh, one of the greatest American economists, uh, Alvin Hansen at, at Harvard, was uh, was predicting a, a long term long-term stagnation because the the uh, there would be no jobs to replace those that were being eliminated at the time. And when I say eliminated at the time, the depression was actually a very, uh, very strong period for innovations. And one of the, uh, one of them, for example, was uh, automated uh, track inspection. So it used to be that uh, railroads would employ men to walk along the tracks on foot and look for a weak, spot, weak spots, what had to be repaired. And now, of course, on railroads, we can see these machines that are, that are uh, moving along the rails and, and uh, with ever more powerful instruments, they're, they're able to detect potential flaws in the rails. But that didn't mean that overall employment and transportation was going to go down. It just meant that it was shifting. So. Uh, I, you know, I think it's more likely that we'll be seeing, um, we'll be seeing long-term uh, shifts in employment. Uh, but one of the one of the big issues, actually, I was just reading an article about this, is that that people say, well, the the way to um, the way to future-proof your kids is to have them learn how to code, have you know, learn, make them like make them technical gurus. So they'll always be in demand, but there is a problem now in Silicon Valley that once people reach the age of uh, of forty or over or, or even thirty, uh, companies are no longer interested in them because there is a there is a, a new crop of uh, freshly trained people who are available and can be had for much less money. So I think there is a there is generally a problem in creating and sustaining meaningful careers. But I don't think that artificial intelligence is really going to uh, be the disaster that people say. 
One of the other things that you talk about for our, our audience of managers is competitor neglect. And, and I'll shorten it up for everybody. Edward, tell me if I have this correct. So you have your data on them. They have the, the data on you. But the only winner in all this is really if you are a manager and a leader that is the early adopter, the first person to do something in your business role, and then everybody else follows and Swiffer sweeps up behind you. Does that still hold true? Well, there were, there were a lot of um, a lot of effects that that can be studied under under competitor neglect. You know, and one of them is just that that um, that people uh, don't always aren't always able to visualize how quickly uh, an innovation of yours can be copied, or somebody else is already working on something like that. And I think what what very often happens is that that uh, you're you're going ahead and you're working on something, but there are there may be a half dozen other uh, innovations that other companies have in mind that are uh, that, you know that promise to do the same thing, and it's very hard for you to know what they're doing. So the the point of it is uh, to me is not to assume that you're going to blindside everybody. To quite the contrary, to have this paranoid sense that that they've got really brilliant people and if you're not careful they're going to uh, you know they're, they're they're really going to blindside you and and um so it's it's you know I've, this is something i learned in chess that that i would you know there was a move that really looked cool to me and i didn't pay enough attention to all of the tricks that the other side would have to neutralize what i was planning and then i was uh, i was wiped out so uh I, I think playing chess is a very good way to learn how to uh, respect the intelligence of the other side. Yeah, Lee and I are smiling because we play chess all the time. And that's, <laughs> he sideswiped me a couple times lately. It's been kind of annoying. So I, I, I didn't think it was possible to checkmate somebody in four moves, but hey, I was like, I, I took it. So and I, I felt like a bad friend afterwards. So I did, so. Now, Lee, you had a question for Edward about false positives. Well, this is something that, that we deal with here at Sales Fuel because our whole company is, we, help, we do discovery. Uh, and of course, we use big data. We use AI, machine learning, and all that sort of thing to, to gather that. We also subscribe to various databases and things and we merge and analyze data but you know it's for us it's like we found that there are so many false positives that you can have if you just rely on the data alone and analyze and having machines analyze the data that you know it's going to uncover some things that you know while it looks right to a computer to a human being that lo looks at things differently uh you know it, it's wrong and uh so you know, and to counter that though sometimes we uh, we'll build in so many mechanisms then to eliminate false positives that we end up neutering the data so that, you know, it's so conservative and uh, that it really has no surprises, no insight, no nothing. And so where do you find that fine line between, you know, false positives and actually being useful? And, you know, what is the role of, of human beings in this whole process? People, I think, can, can develop uh, um, intuitions that can um, can help them uh, achieve that balance. It, it really is something that, that will, will vary from one industry to another, so I, I don't think there's any formula for it. But um, one of the, the, the um, uh, one of the main problems of all kinds of artificial intelligence is that uh, it will it will, for example, uh, facial recognition will have so many uh, false identifications and then these have to be, 
have to be cleared uh, manually. There, there, there have also been studies that show that, uh, that uh, in general, uh, for example, for automobile guidance, the, these recognition systems might uh, confuse a, a, like a dog with a fire plug or, or stuff like that. They An ugly really, dog. They can really have some, 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 bizarre, some bizarre effects. So uh, the idea of tacit knowledge, though, to me is, is a really central one, and that's the idea that, that people know a lot of things that they don't know they know, but that would be very difficult for any artificial intelligence system to, uh, to replicate. And my favorite example of that is how little children will be able to interpret the meaning of, of an unfamiliar proverb. So we are, we are metaphorical animals in the way that artificial intelligence programs aren't. So if you, if you ask a, a computer uh, about um, a rolling stone gathers no moss, I, I, know I doubt, unless you pre-programmed in, I doubt it would explain what that, what that uh, proverb was supposed to mean. And actually, it is ambiguous. When I was growing up, when I was a little kid, I always wondered, well, is moss good or bad? I mean, should you keep rolling because you don't want to be encumbered by this moss? Or is moss a metaphor for money or whatever? And you, uh, you want to stay put and get that moss. <laughs> so uh, that, that ambiguity, computers hate ambiguity. But ambiguity is really a very important part of human existence. One of the things that concerns me is that the person that's recognizing the patterns in the data, you know, or the person that programs that, it's like, you know, there's a, there's a certain uh, either cultural or, or pers- bias in their, in their perspective. And so I'm, and I'm thinking about Silicon Valley and I'm thinking about the types of people that, that work in those jobs or whatever. They're, they're not overwhelmingly female, you know, and, and there, there are certain races and not other races and that sort of thing. Is that something that we should be concerned about uh, being baked into our AI? Absolutely. And there are a number of uh, very good books on the subject. So when I wrote my book, I did not go extensively into that because um, people like uh, Kathy O'Neill, for example, uh, uh, in in Weapons of Mass Destruction, uh, uh, discussed them. But uh, on the other hand, what I tried to say was that, that it's a mistake to think that once we eliminate gender bias and uh, ethnic and racial bias, that everything will still be unbiased. Uh, To the contrary, I'm arguing that those are only two examples of the kinds of bias that can be baked into artificial intelligence. What are some other examples? Well, I I think uh, for one thing, maybe maybe a bias toward, uh, toward looking at what can be most easily measured and um, not paying enough attention to things that, that might lead in the long run to, to more measurable results but are, but are harder to measure in the short run. That's, that, that's just a general way of putting that. Well, I was going to say the website for Edward is edwardtenor.com, T-E-N-N-E-R. Your Twitter is Edward underscore Tenor. The book, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. And I encourage uh, everybody to watch you on your YouTube as well, because uh, just the stories that you tell and the history that you have out of your scholar and, and scholarly and academic career, some of the stories and the examples you give that explain all this are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much.
Yeah. So we really enjoyed having you on the show, Edward, and um, we hope you'll tell a friend or a colleague about it. Subscribe, rate, and review. If we could have five stars, that would be great. ManageSmarter.com is where the show lives. The entire archive of uh, episodes is on there. And also, if you'd like to suggest a guest, there's an inquiry form on there as well. So Edward, such a pleasure. And I hope we didn't disturb the Princeton Cafe too much there at the library. No, I, I don't see a, I don't see a single dirty yeah. book. What, what's the Excellent. special there today? I'm sorry. What's the special there today? <laughs> well, they're 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 really it's it's really a cafe that kind of serves the same the same thing all all the time. I, I have not I have not tried anything here in in in, in a long time. I'm no no criticism though. I'm sure it's, uh, <laughs> it's perfectly perfectly good food. But the main thing is that they did not they did not disturb me during this event, and for that I am grateful. And we are grateful for having you on. Thank you, Edward. Thank Thank you you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.